So as we come to the time when we are going to open God's scripture and hear from him, let's bow again and ask his blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Pray your comfort on Rosella Dunn and all of her extended family and on us and others who are struggling right now with sad, sad things. Father, we thank you that your word holds answers to every question in life and that by looking to you through your word, we may learn and grow and have joy in any circumstance. We pray that it would be so. As we open your word today, we ask you to teach us and to give us ready hearts. Be glorified in us and how we respond to your scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed that sometimes it can be very challenging to think through how our faith should be applied in practical situations. Stuff comes up, and the implications of the Christian life in that circumstance require a little bit of thought. And one of the things playing into the challenges in that category is often our sinful experiences from before we came to Christ. And people have radically different reactions to those experiences. Some are tempted to go back and do what they did before they came to Christ. Those things still allure. They still tempt. Others are just appalled at what they did as unbelievers, and so much so that sometimes they overreact and they wind up being against things that God is not against. We sort of lump it all into the same category and argue more than the Scripture argues against. I've known several people who indulged uh, with enthusiasm in alcohol as unbelievers. I'm not saying they're alcoholics. I'm saying they were sometimes drunk and out of control. And now as Christians... They can only think of alcohol as being inherently evil, as if the substance itself possesses a capacity for evil and cannot possibly have a good application. Now, these are people who are serious about being godly, and they they don't want to go back to what they were before, and they have a hard time thinking that even one step in that direction wouldn't be a compromise. And, uh, And they mistakenly think that Christians who differ on this subject are compromised when those Christians recognize freedom in the area of the use of alcohol. They tend not to want to hear how the Jews were required to bring wine as an offering, and then after they had offered a portion of the wine, they would partake in the wine at their feast as a part of the worship of the Lord God. They tend not to want to notice the passage where Paul tells Timothy to take a little wine also because he's got stomach problems, They just think alcohol has no place in the godly life. Now, people struggle with that same sort of issue in a lot of areas of life. How much freedom do you have to dress however you want? And at what point does that freedom drift into a zone that we might call sinful enticement of others? Where's that line? What about styles of music? Where's the line? Some of it's certainly bad, but where does that start? And what about the various forms of entertainment that people indulge in when they're not working? We would probably all agree that we do have some freedom in those areas. 
But at what point does behavior move from wise to unwise? And at what point does it move from unwise to downright sinful? Well, among the many challenges that plagued the church at Corinth, which we're studying right now, there were some things that were in that sort of category. Sincere Christians were struggling with what was okay to do and what was not okay to do, and they couldn't agree. And so the Corinthians had written to the Apostle Paul asking him some really practical questions. What's true about marriage? Or about some of the issues within marriage? Or what is true about whether it's even good to be married? They were actually asking that question. And then what do you do when sincere Christians disagree on matters of conscience? How do you sort that out? And then is... Is meat offered to idols, which was very common. You could get a bargain. Whatever was left over was for sale. You could get a deal. But is that meat forbidden for a Christian to eat? Or do you go ahead and take that deal because you know the idol means nothing? They couldn't agree. So the Corinthians had questions on all sorts of things. And In this section of the book that we're starting today, Paul begins to answer their questions. We don't have the letter where they wrote the questions, but we know from what Paul says he's now answering questions. And as we'll see, there's much in these practical matters that requires some some careful thinking, some sound theology, and a willing spirit within us. And the first of the questions that Paul takes on involves issues within marriage, and whether Christians should even be married at all. And it's very much like that issue of alcohol. Sincere believers disagreed, and they were having trouble navigating the subject and getting along with one another. Now, there were different backgrounds that tended to to bring different assumptions. You know, you, you you still got your background after you get saved, and some of the ways you think are associated with how you grew up and how you thought before. And those who were influenced by the pagan culture that pretty much permeated all of Corinth tended to think that it really didn't matter who someone had sex with. And so those questions of marriage weren't really even on their radar. They thought, this doesn't matter at all. What are you, what are you even asking for? Some of them believed that they could revert to the sins of their past because it just didn't matter what you did with your body. And Paul corrected that view in last week's text at the last part of chapter 6. But that left a few questions still on the table, some things that had to be corrected. The people who were strongly influenced by a Jewish background and the culture associated with first century Judaism tended to make this assumption. You have to get married. It's mandatory for everybody. It's God's design that you need to get married. So you're getting married. Now, your parents are going to pick for you. Or if you're fortunate, they're going to be interested in your input when they pick for you. That's just how it is. God wants you to be married. This is how it works. Sit down and shut up. That was the, that was the attitude of a lot of the Jews at that time. But some of the Christians who had been saved out of that pagan practice that involved temple prostitutes, were so appalled at what they had done that they could only see sex as evil. They didn't think it could have a good application. And many of them thought that it would be better for everyone just to be celibate 
just like everyone ought to be a teetotaler in some people's minds, even if they're married, these people thought everyone ought to be celibate. They couldn't manage to associate that physical act with anything good because their, their own former experiences were so odious to them that it just bled into everything else. Some of those who thought that way even believed that Christians who were married should get divorced so that they could be celibate and be holier. <laughs> they were saying that celibacy is better, so you shouldn't get married at all, but if you are married, it would be better just to get a divorce so you can be holy. Now, others who thought that way said, no, 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 this marriage is for life. You, you can't end it, but they wanted to redefine it as something that did not include physical intimacy, which is not the right definition of marriage. And so the, the Christians in this church had some radically divergent views on what marriage was supposed to look like, and, and they're asking Paul, what do we do? Who's right? Is it better to be celibate? Is it better to be married? If you do marry, what place does physical intimacy have within the relationship? How do you work out differences that you may have in terms of desire and frequency? You might not agree. Well, all of that is wrapped up in the first part of Paul's answering their questions. Now, I should say before we read the passage today that there are some challenges in translation here that make the English sound more like Paul is anti-marriage than it ought to sound and that it actually is. You may get the impression that Paul is just down on marriage as if marriage only exists for people who are too weak to be single like he is. That's not at all what he means. He's not saying that celibacy is godly but marriage is ungodly or only for the weak, though many have mistaken it to say that just because of the way it's worded in English. He's not saying that marriage is only for a physical relationship and that there's nothing else to it. Other texts, particularly Ephesians 5, Paul makes it clear that he has a very well-rounded view of marriage, and it's not just a physical act that it exists for. But in this text, he's answering questions, and so he only addresses the questions asked. He leaves the, the well-rounded treatment of marriage for another day. Now, we also need to notice that Paul is doing something a little bit odd in this text. He's He's telling us when he's quoting the Lord and when he's not quoting the Lord. It doesn't mean that the part when he's not quoting the Lord isn't true or isn't inspired or isn't compelling to us. All Scripture is inspired by, inspired by God and profitable. He's just letting you know when he's quoting the Lord and when he's not quoting the Lord. When he says, so I say the Lord, not I, or so I say I, not the Lord, he's just telling you. the quote. They don't have quotation marks in Koine Greek, so that he's telling you when he's quoting so don't think that part of it doesn't count because of the way he worded it. So with all of that in mind, I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, I say, not the Lord, that if any believer has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are, are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now in the first verse of this chapter, Paul makes it clear that he's answering those questions that they asked. And then the verse uses this phrase, to touch a woman which was a euphemism for the physical act that God prescribed for husbands and wives in marriage only. So he's saying in verse 1 that it's good to be celibate. If people decide not to marry, if they think that marriage is not for them, and they're not longing for that kind of relationship, and they're not tempted to fulfill carnal desires outside of marriage, Paul is saying it's perfectly good and acceptable for such a person to remain celibate, to be single for life. It's possible to be single and be holy. He's not saying it's a holier alternative. He's not encouraging the development of a monastic order based on the vow of celibacy. He's just saying that if a Christian doesn't want to get married, that's fine. You can still live a godly life. Now, it's good for us to hear that from Scripture because, frankly, an awful lot of people just don't believe that's so. If somebody remains single beyond a certain age, people start to think, what's wrong with that person? Christians who decide not to marry are sometimes looked down on as if there's something wrong. But Paul says it's not so. It's at least not necessarily so. Some people God has called to be single all their lives. And it's an acceptable way for a believer to live. They shouldn't be looked down on, and they certainly shouldn't think less of themselves if that's their calling. But we should also acknowledge that that is not the common way. Many people desire the kind of companionship designed by God to be a part of marriage. Most have a very strong drive for that kind of intimacy and a longing to fulfill that desire. Now, there are only two ways that desire can be fulfilled. You either sin against God in acts of immorality, or you get married. 
Those are your only two choices. And so Paul says it's good to be celibate. But then in verse 2, he says, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The way to avoid immorality is to have your own spouse. Celibacy is good and monogamy in marriage is good. That's what he's saying. Because these strong desires are the common experience, everybody who has those desires should be seeking to be married, look for a godly spouse, pray for a godly spouse, so that the desired activity can take place the way God designed with your spouse. Every man is to have his own wife. Every woman is to have her own husband. It's the only way to fulfill those desires without sinning against God. But having settled that question, and I think that's a pretty succinct way to settle the question. I think you took care of that. But having done that, there are still some more questions. Even when you agree to all of that, there are things to work through involving how couples relate within marriage. In every marriage relationship, one partner has more of a drive and the other partner has less of a drive. I don't know how many counseling sessions I've had on that subject over the years. It's just the common way. You don't line up exactly. Well, if they did, they didn't come to me about it. It doesn't happen much. (laughs) And then, in addition to that general idea that one person's drive tends to be stronger than the other person's drive, there's any particular time when one person might be really in the mood and the other person might not be in the mood at all. How are you going to sort that out? You have your own spouse, just as God designed. You have the opportunity to fulfill your physical desires the way God designed. You can actually do that and glorify God doing it. You have the opportunity for guilt-free intimacy that most of the world knows nothing about. But you don't agree on the timing and the frequency. That can lead to some conflict and frustration. So now what do you do? Who gets to decide? Now, a lot of men assume that as the God-appointed leader of the family, it's the man's job to decide such such things, and the poor wife is just going to have to deal with it. That is a common assumption, but Paul doesn't go there at all. In fact, he, he pushes that common view aside completely. It doesn't fit at all the way he words his answer. He says that, he says in verses 3 and 4, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise the wife also to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So wait just a minute. The husband has authority over the wife. Yes, that's what he says. But the wife has authority over the husband too. Wording's the same, equal authority. Yeah, that's what he says. So in this instance, neither person has a trump card to play to say, you got to do what I want. Nobody nobody has that. So now what do you do? 
Instead of, think, of thinking that the husband decides for both and the wife just has to deal with it, or maybe the wife decides for both and the husband just has to deal with it, or maybe you make a chart and you decide based on whose day it is, this gives you a whole different direction to go. In the realm of marital intimacy, the husband is called to fulfill his duty to his wife, and the wife is called to fulfill her duty to her husband, and the husband has authority over the wife's body, and the wife has authority over the husband's body, and nobody decides for the other. Nobody decides for the couple how it's going to be. So instead of one spouse having authority to rule over the other, and the other feeling reluctant and used, this says the couple has to, find, has to find a way to work it out. If they both have the same authority, then together they got to figure out what's going to work for both of them, taking into account the needs and desires of the other. Now, one underlying assumption in Paul's argument is that there will be intimacy in marriage. Some people in Corinth were questioning whether that should even be, but Paul is making that clearly the case. Celibacy is right for a single person, but long-term celibacy within a marriage is wrong unless there's a health issue that's preventing that from happening. Each spouse has a duty to provide marital affection to the other, and And working out questions of frequency and timing is something to decide together, with each one learning how to defer to the other. Sometimes you give way, sometimes your spouse gives way. You take it all into account, you find a way to agree. It's the only possible option when everybody's got the same authority and everybody's got the same duty. But in this this give and take that God designed into the relationship, there is one thing that is absolutely forbidden. Neither spouse is to continually deny the other. Verse 5 says, Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, the longing for this kind of intimacy can be very strong, and nobody should do anything to cast his or her spouse into the zone of temptation. Now, the next verse is one of the ones that's a little bit difficult to convey in English, and it's led to some misunderstandings of the passage. Verse 6 says, But I say this by way of concession, not command. And if you're already thinking that way from some of the other wording, it sounds like Paul's down on marriage. He's as if he's saying, look, because you guys are so weak and and you can't handle celibacy like we really holy people can, God has made a concession and he made up marriage for people like you. (laughs) That's, That's what it sounds like he's saying. As if marriage is not the ideal, it's just an adjustment God had to make for human weakness. That's sometimes how that verse is taken, but that's not at all what it means. If it meant that, it would be absolutely inconsistent with all of the rest of Scripture, but it doesn't mean that. This word translated concession or permission in verse 6 does mean that some sort of adjustment is being made. I mean, it has to mean that. That's the word that's used. It's an agreement. It's, 
It's meeting somebody halfway. It's making a concession, giving permission, making an allowance. But the allowance being made does not involve marriage as a second-rate position to be in, as if it's an alternative for people who can't cut it as real serious Christians. What he's saying is that the husband and wife have to make allowances for each other. He says these things by way of you making allowances and your spouse making allowances, both of you thinking of the needs of the other. Now, you notice through all of this, with all of this wording, Paul is not giving anyone a rule to submit to. Our minds want that. We want to have a rule. Okay, this is what we have to do, especially if the rule appears to go our way. You have to, honey. We got a rule. Well, there's not a rule. There's nothing here so the husband can put his wife in her place. There's nothing here so that the wife can put her husband in his place. God has not created a legal guideline that could result only in reluctant intimacy on the part of one of the two people. He's suggesting that the husband and the wife learn to defer to one another, to accommodate the needs of the other, to figure out something that fixes everybody's need the best way possible. Rigid rule following is not a part of how married Christians should decide about their intimate encounters. Instead, we think of the other person's need, we think of the other person's weaknesses, we make some allowances for the circumstances, you know, one is worn out, the other's not, you know, you, you, if you're not the one worn out, maybe you should yield tonight and be understanding. Think of this situation. Now, verse 7 is another one of those things that makes people think this passage is down on marriage. Paul makes it clear that he thinks the way God gifted him is best. He's gifted to be single for life, and he thinks that's best, which is natural enough. Being wired to think that way kind of goes with the package, doesn't it? If, if God gave you this gift to be single, which is not how most people are wired, then you're going to think that's pretty good. And that's what Paul thinks. But Paul also realized that other people are gifted in different ways. And so this is one more reminder that the way of life that Paul had is valid. Sometimes God calls people to singleness. And Paul does yet more to emphasize that point in the next two verses. In verses 8 and 9, he says, But I say to you, I say to the unmarried and to widows, that it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So having established some standards for intimacy in marriage, Paul moves on to the subject of marriage itself. Is it better to marry or remain single? Is it better to divorce under certain circumstances? Or should Christians remain in marriage even if things are not perfect? Now, in this text, there are two distinct terms for people who are not married, and there's one more that comes later in the same chapter. Unmarried here refers to people who used to be married and are not anymore. They're divorced. They're not married. They have become unmarried. Widows obviously refers to people who were married, and they're not married now because the other spouse has died. They're in a kind of a separate category from the divorced. 
these marriages ended in the death of a spouse. And then later in, cha- in the chapter, virgins are mentioned, and in this context, meaning people who have never been married. So Paul, in this part of the passage, addresses the divorced and the widowed, and he thinks it's better if from now on they stay like him and remain single for life, but again he recognizes not everybody's wired that way. In fact, most people are not wired that way. And then he deals with an even harder question. What if you and your Christian spouse just can't get along anymore? What if you're not happy? What if you're no longer attracted to each other and maybe one of you is attracted to somebody else? What if you were both unbelievers and now you've become a Christian and your spouse has not? And your spouse is pretty antagonistic to everything you stand for now. Would it be better just to end a marriage like that? Some of the Christians in Corinth were thinking that it would be better. So Paul has to address that next. And God's design is, is made clear throughout Scripture is for marriages to end in the death of one of the two spouses. That's, that's how it's supposed to work. It doesn't always work that way. A lot of issues that are just sins lead to divorces that are not good for anybody, but that happens. But there are two ways other than death that a marriage can end in which one of the spouses at least is not sinning in the process. One is when an unbelieving spouse abandons a believing spouse. When an unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage, the marriage ends, and the the abandoned spouse is not under bondage, not bound. The other way is when one spouse commits adultery. In that case, the victim has the option to end the marriage without sinning. They're not mandated to do it. Sometimes they don't do it, but they have that option. Adultery is a biblical justification for divorce. So Paul affirms all those ideas that are found in other places in Scripture as well. But he says if an unbelieving spouse is willing to remain in the marriage, the believer must not divorce. They must not send them away. But if an unbeliever abandons the marriage, the believer is not bound. The The abandoned spouse is free to move on, free to remarry. But outside of those parameters... A believer's not to file for divorce. And if one does, there's no freedom to remarry. They've got to just be celibate or be reconciled to their former spouse. Now, this makes people scratch their heads. Why would God have a Christian stay in a marriage to a person who continues to reject the gospel? Maybe both were lost when they were married, both pulling in the same ungodly direction, but now they're unequally yoked. One is saved, trying to go one way, the other's lost, trying to go the other way. It can be really frustrating. And we're forbidden to marry someone in that condition. We're forbidden to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, to begin a marriage that way. So why would God have Christians stay in a marriage that is that way? And the reasons given here for staying in such a marriage, the reason is the sanctifying influence of the believer on that unbelieving spouse and on the children. Sanctify means to make holy, to set something aside as given to God. And so you have to stay. It's your duty to stay. You're commanded to stay. And you're to do it so that your spouse can be sanctified. 
your being in a marriage, if you're a believer, married to an unbeliever, your staying in the marriage gives great hope that your spouse and your children will become holy. You don't know what God's doing in their lives through you as you remain faithful in this less-than-ideal situation. God may use you to save your spouse. So Scripture asks you how you know that your spouse will not be saved through you. Better to have a holy influence in that marriage than to abandon this person. Now, you don't begin a situation like that. God forbid, forbids that. But if, if you're in a marriage and one gets saved and the other doesn't, the, 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 the one who's been made holy has a responsibility to stay in hopes that God will act. And even if decades go by, the question is still valid. How do you know God is not going to save your spouse through you? How do you know God's not going to save your, your children through your godly example? In 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. The same thing works with the husbands and unbelieving wives. Do not underestimate the power of a godly example especially when it's lived in such close intimacy as a marriage relationship. If the unbelieving spouse is willing to stay, the believer must not initiate divorce. If an unbeliever abandons the marriage, the believer is not bound. Now, not under bondage or not bound in this text, we need to understand, means not bound. If you get down deep, deep in the Greek, it means not bound. (laughs) It's not complicated. You're not under bondage. Now, for centuries, people have put all sorts of caveats on this. We know God hates divorce. It's not ideal. But God has made accommodations for certain things because it's not always your fault. And so many people over the centuries have read this to say the believing spouse is not under bondage except, and then fill in the blank. But not bound means not bound. Free to move on, free to remarry. Yeah, there's going to be some baggage, but that doesn't mean you're bound. There's no law against your doing what you want to do in marriage if you were abandoned or if you were the victim of adultery. Now, there are even more issues related to marriage in this chapter, but that's going to be enough for today. I think we can wrap up the subject just with a reminder that marriage is not an institution created by people. It's an institution created by God. He designed it from the very beginning. We look to Him for every detail. And this passage is just a reminder that no matter what kind of wacky ideas we came into this thing with, no matter what sort of problems we have in our relationships, the Bible addresses everything, everything. There are answers if we will look in faith. This text is particularly helpful because it gives us insight into God's design for marriage in the face of all of the hard things that come along in this world, and there are plenty of them. 
Yeah, God's not condemning anyone. He's just telling us how to get through this. There's a lot of grace in this chapter. Immorality is never acceptable. But if God called you to celibacy, that's good. And if God called you to marriage, that's good. And if God called you to marriage, He has made it so that you can work out every detail in harmony with your spouse, trusting the Lord, learning from the Lord how to defer to others, how to make others more important than yourself. And then if your spouse is doing the same thing, it's great fun. When you're in a contest with your spouse, who can love the other one more? It gets pretty good. Life is good. God has made things so you can work it out in harmony together so that everybody's needs are met. Everybody's situation is accommodated. So God has designed a way for you to be godly and function well, whatever your calling, whatever your present circumstance. I know that many are wanting to be married or are not married right now. And, you know, God knows how to take care of you. Keep asking Him for what you long for. He'll bring it about. Whatever your present circumstance, there's a godly position and you can live it. And God will be glorified in you as you obey Him, even in your present situation. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word and for the practical truth that it holds, showing us how to navigate situations in life, showing us the value of putting others first, looking to you for answers, humbling ourselves. We pray that you would help us to apply the scripture for today, to live well for you in a way that glorifies you. We pray for those who do not have the capacity yet for this kind of godliness, that you would have mercy on them and save their souls as they believe that Jesus alone can rescue them from sin and bring them to heaven. We commit all of this to you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.